Following in the footsteps of great artists like Judy Chicago, Vanessa Centeno, Robin Leroy Evans, Christina Molina, and Rin Wilson, together working as Crystal FMs, are using food to make art, which is more than visual. It is multisensory. We discuss their ideas, their process, and their works in progress. It's on tip of the tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. So we're here today with the Crystal FMs, and I'm very excited to have them. I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves. Why don't you start, Christina? Hi there. Thank you so much for having us on your show. I'm Christina Molina. I'm a visual artist. I'm also associate professor of new media and animation at Southeastern Louisiana University, where I serve as gallery director as well. I'm Ren Wilson. Thank you so much for having us. I'm very excited to be here. I'm also a visual artist and I'm a seamstress and costumer working in film performance and fashion. Hi there, I'm Robin Leroy Evans. I'm also a visual artist and I am also a copywriter for sustainable businesses and I'm also a mom and I'm one one part of the Crystal Femmes. And unfortunately, Vanessa Centeno isn't able to be here with us, but welcome to all of you. And I'm going to just allow you all to jump in and, and answer these questions. But my first question is, what is Crystal FMs? Well, <laughs> do, you want to, do you want to start, Rin, or do you want me to? You can go ahead. Great. So the Crystal FMs are a quartet of interdisciplinary artists who work together to produce immersive installations. And uh, we're very much interested in flipping the script of um, patriarchal narratives. So we have a, a very much a feminist agenda and we use myth, storytelling, installation, all of our multimedia practices, video art, soft sculpture to create these immersive environments that retell mythical narratives from a feminist perspective. And music? Do you use music? Yeah, we do use sound in our video installations. A lot of the sound is generated from us, from different recording, field recordings that we, we might take or um, sound that we manipulate and recompose. We've also had projects where we uh, do, we've done this stage performance called Visionary Bringers, Future Tellers. And the idea was that we performed as these oracles who could give some insight into a future where a population would actually listen to, to women's voices. So this was really close to the Kavanaugh trial. What 
they, they insist that it was not a trial. So the Kavanaugh inquiry research. <laughs> and we were, we were very, you know, disappointed in the outcome. And we felt like once again, this is a story about how uh, the law is not designed to support a victim or to support the voices of women. The law is designed to support a very kind of patriarchal male voice. And so we created this stage performance where we were really talking about speech, clarity of voice and vision and honoring this idea of the, of the feminine oracle figure and how it once used to be serve as this advisory role that was actually listened to and how we, um, how we long for that once more. So, so that was kind of a musical experience. Well, I want to ask you about the environments that you have created that use food. I know that you don't always use food, but I want to know why you chose food, but I also want you to describe how you use it in your environment and to what end is it used. So tell um, us about the, the creation, uh, creation that, that had food. <laughs> the fall exhibition that we did, which was the retelling of the story of the Garden of Eden, you know, we were kind of thinking of ways that we could build up to this larger exhibition and also help us fundraise for that. And we decided that a series of dinners would be a really great way to do that because we could have small intimate gatherings that could be little glimpses into what this final exhibition was gonna be. And so we broke it up into four parts. So we had four dinners and the final exhibition was four rooms. So each dinner was based on the theme of, of each room. So the first room, and dinner was themed after the red womb. And the second one was the tree of knowledge, conversations with the snake. The third one was the dark grotto. And the fourth one was the sunlit garden. And then for each of the dinners, we chose foods that were in some form forbidden uh, to go along with our theme of the Garden of Eden. So, you know, things like um, and you guys will have to jump in here to remind me some of the foods, but the apple, for example, is an obvious one. Mm -hmm. And then things like shellfish as well. Like we had shrimp in the first meal, which, you know, in, in various cultures is forbidden to eat certain shellfish. And, and then we did a lot of research and Christina can speak more on this too, because she was definitely our head chef <laughs> and, um, but yeah, we, we, we really kind of dove into lots of different cultures and traditions while looking at the menu and uh, we, while designing the menu actually, because all, all of our menus were completely designed from scratch and they each aligned with every experience. So every dinner was different and constructed around the food and the environment that we built around to enjoy the food. And yeah. Go ahead, Christina, you can speak more on, on some of your choices. Yeah, so I, I started researching, and we all did collectively, but the major influence was this idea of like Judeo-Christian forbidden foods, because I think all of us, whether we grew up as practitioners or not, that's like our cultural background. And so 
there are these segments, um, and I don't know if you yourself, Liz, <laughs> had this any any kind of experience with this, but I remember, you know, my grandparents were Seventh-day Adventists, so they basically kept the laws of kosher. And so, you know, shellfish, and as Robin was saying, and basically the, the biblical description is food, animals that do not chew of the cud are not allowed. And I think the idea originally was because, you know, there were, there's no pasteurization back then. And so these were animals that couldn't necessarily be hygienized for consumption. But we kind of took that idea and, and used these so-called forbidden or dangerous substances and celebrated them, encouraged the consumption of them as a kind of devious, seemingly devious act that could also transcend you. And it- Serve pork? We didn't serve pork, but we did serve shellfish and other foods that are listed as being kind of off limits. Mm -hmm. um, with the, with the um, you know, on the fourth, on the third dark grotto with the-, um, the Oh yeah, you're right. We did serve pork. <laughs> we did. You're right. We we made this uh, huge charcuterie spread for one of the dinners that was so almost ridiculously bountiful with cold cuts and cheeses and nuts and fruits. So you're right, Robin. Thank you for remembering that. And um, there were also there was also a lot of research of fruits and vegetables that had some kind of mythic connection to devious figures like tomatoes, for example. And I found this literature that was talking about how tomatoes were used in the bomb of witches for their potions and for different kinds of spellcraft. So tomatoes were a big, we used them a lot as well. That's, I mean, that sounds really fascinating not only to have such a dinner, but to include it in the environments that you, that you created. How, how can that be expanded to something that isn't so intimate? Because you could still experience the environment without actually eating. And I, I think it would be an interesting question to try to do that, but you couldn't eliminate the, the food altogether. If you were to expand it into a bigger installation, how would you do that? We did do a version of that on the third dinner because we, you know, realized that it was kind of prohibitive for some people to come to the dinners when there's only 15 seats and there's a certain price range. So we decided to do, we had a residency um, at the Canal Place Mall through the New Orleans Arts Council, which was wonderful opportunity and part of that involved an exhibition in there they had a gallery space set up in the mall so we did an installation and performance that was open to the public so anybody could come and then we had this charcuterie spread that you can pay you could buy like a wristband for basically and and indulge in that so so that way everybody could kind of come and join us and then it does change the kind of service that you have to do too when you have something like a charcuterie tray or spread. Um, so I can imagine that the sort of technical aspects of that become a little bit easier 
tell me, how is it that, I understand that, that you wanted to have dinners. And so that also came into your decision to, uh, because of fundraising, that, that came into your decision to include food in these environments. But through your experience of doing that, do you think that that the sensual component of food as well as sound and visual or whatever are things that really go together and that you'll continue to use in the future? Absolutely. I feel like, you know, that was really what I enjoyed most about, about putting these dinners on was that it was very intimate. And, you know, when you share food with people, that in itself is such a, you know, special event. And we were really trying to grasp onto that and use that um, to, to enhance the, the, the concepts behind the work. My favorite was probably the first iteration, which was the Red Womb, because it really was, um, you know, you were really immersed in, in, in an environment and it was in some, one of our mutual friends' homes. So it felt much more intimate and like a real dinner party. Um, but there was, you know, all these other elements happening and it just became this very, you know, I mean, they were all so special in their own right and all very different, but something about that first one. And I think the energy that we felt, you know, going into it too, you know, we were so excited for the first revealing of this idea. And, um, and that was really interesting too, how over time, you know, each one did evolve and watching that happen and seeing how the final, you know, the, the goal, the final goal, which was our main exhibition, how that was all coming together because it was all this, it was this journey that we were taking other people on, not just ourselves. And so it became, you know, very, um, jump in if you think of a good word, <laughs> ladies, <laughs> but it, it was just extremely, um, it's very hard to put into words because, you know, it was, like entirely experiential and it's something that we'll never forget I don't think so it's, it's actually wonderful to be able to revisit it and talk about it a little bit because it was such a incredible experience for us and to share that with different people every time as well that that was that was fun yeah, when I, absolutely oh cool I don't want to oh I was just when you were asking about kind of the visual art aspect of it and I think that you know that was really fun to think of how we could make food into visual art as well um, and into you know interactive visual art so we kind of had color themes for each dinner so the foods would relate to the um, the installation which usually had a specific color theme um, and then like for example with the the tree of knowledge conversations with the snake we thought a lot about unwrapping and so we did um uh i'm forgetting the foods but we <laughs> we had foods that you had to like literally unwrap like a gift and open up and and eat um like a banana or something like that like tamales close <laughs> we, yeah we made tamales and we we actually used rins uh we forged leaves from Rin's banana trees uh -huh. to make to make the wrapping of the tamales instead of corn husks. Mm -hmm. I should mention that so the theme of the dinners, and I think Rin alluded to this earlier, but the fall, 
the, the umbrella project is called The Fall, and the dinner series is called the Forbidden Foods Dinner Parties. And so within each of the design aspects, we were thinking about recreating the story of the Garden of Eden from creation all the way to transcendence. So that each dinner served as a kind of chapter through this journey where we're recreating this myth of the Garden of Eden where all of humanity's downfall is because of one woman's error. We're not into that, <laughs> which was Eve, you know, eating the apple from the serpent. So we were not into, we didn't subscribe to that narrative. So what we were trying to do here was reimagine if this, if I guess our big question was, what if the fall of man never happened and all of these figures are still in the garden right now? What visually and sensorially what would that be like? What would that experience be like? So, so the, sorry, go ahead. I have to tell you that when I saw the pictures, my first thought was of Judy Chicago and mm -hmm. the dinner party. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is so great because this is actually real dinner party. <laughs> and so you had sort of brought that, that concept to life because you know, there are a lot of paintings and, and photographs of food that are considered art. Um, and you can look at all the memento mori and, and other kinds of uses of food in, um, in art. But this was real food. And I kept thinking about, okay, so you put the food together there and you take a picture of it in the way that so many people take pictures of their dinner and all of that sort of thing and put it all over Instagram and wherever else they put it. But then as art, you have to, as you ate it, you know, it doesn't look the same anymore as you deconstruct however you've assembled it in the beginning, as you share it, as you start to eat it, and then you've consumed the thing. So it, it it's, different from consuming something with your eyes because when you see it it's still there even after you've seen it whereas this has to be actually consumed and there's just an intimacy about putting something into your body that is really really amazing to me and I love that you brought all of that into the art I, I think that's that's terrific Thank you. Yeah, we certainly, you know, we're very much interested in performance because of that ephemerality that you describe and because it's a way to connect directly with our audiences and to build a kind of relationship. I was reading some literature within the last couple of years or so, I've been really interested in ceramics. And in fact, for our dinners, we created ceramic objects like plates and and vessels where the food was served as part of the whole experience and one of the i can't i'm so sorry to that i can't remember her name right now maybe i can send it to you later so there was a ceramic artist who was saying that food is perhaps or eating is perhaps the last remaining ritual that we all share right, in a, in a society that is so modernized and sped up, the last thing that we have that we can share is to eat. And so I just found that so beautiful. 
that, you know, we could use this very necessary ritual to engage our audiences, something that they must do, right, for survival, (laughs) but also as a way to generate a kind of um, closeness with the viewer and and to metaphorically, but also physically nourish them, care for them, show the expression of care through the construction of these foods and also show narrative through the construction of these foods. As Rin was saying, like each of the foods were chosen by their color, their um, un- their ability to be unveiled. Um, you know, we considered like how the food was presented. So every like even the act itself was carefully considered throughout. I think I, it sounds really really amazing. So, are you working on anything else right now that would um, that would be a new a new project that also includes food? Well, we we actually did have something in the works and then COVID hit and we realized that we were going to have to put that on hold um, until it was safe to gather again. But I think we definitely plan on continuing that thread in the future. Yeah, as you might imagine, it's really hard to get people together to eat <laughs> a bunch of strangers in an intimate setting right now, but we look forward to exploring that in the future, but we do have other non-food related projects that we're working on. And are you, are you thinking of ways to put it into the same sort of accessible place as a mall as you had before, or, or even a museum like the Southern Food and Beverage Museum um, that might be a way for you to reach more people? We would love that. Uh, One thing we've been talking about is publishing some kind of book where we have recipes from our forbidden food dinner parties and images. But, you know, we're, we would love to have an exhibition at the (laughs) Food and Beverage Museum. So we should definitely keep talking about that. But yeah, we're always thinking about ways to make it more accessible. And we even were in conversations with a museum in town about having some kind of virtual food experience. So we definitely have been thinking about that a lot. Like how do we distribute this experience in a broader way? Yeah, and we also would love to expand our guests uh, numbers, which would kind of mean that we would need to hire other people to do a lot of the things. Cause so far we've done pretty much everything. I mean, we, we did have some people helping us with certain aspects of it, but we would like cook all the food and serve it. And, you know, so if we could do, you know, many more guests and kind of expand that would be great. Well, I'm, I'm really excited uh, to hear of all the things that you are working on and the idea of food in art is something that I think is really a crucial question. We actually went around the country several years ago with the question of, is food art? And we had panels all over the country. Obviously, this is not something that we'd be doing right now, but we, we brought together chefs and art historians and artists and other people in different cities all around the United States to discuss the question of whether food is art. 
And, uh, you know, there's the big dichotomy between the English and their attitude toward food and the French. And of course, here we are in a, in a, a city that was founded by the French. And so food as a part of our identity is very strong, but I don't know that it, it is as strong in other places. There was an essay that appeared, I believe it was in the New York Times, saying that food could not be art and that, you know, it doesn't last and all, all kinds of reasons why they said food could not be art. It was very, what I consider a very English attitude um, about it. And of course, nobody is saying that that beautiful peach itself is art because it hasn't been created by a person. But if you slice it up and you put sugar on it and you cook it and you do this and that or whatever, or you make the best jam out of it or whatever you do, it perhaps could be art. And it's kind of, to me, it's like the difference between music, certain music and elevator music. So there's some music is art and some music isn't. But the fact that not all music is art doesn't mean that music can't be art. And I feel the same way about food, that it, um, it not all food is art, but some is. And one of the artists in our, on one of the panels said that food couldn't be art because if food were art, you should be able to feed people poison because you should have no limitations on what it is that you are doing. And I thought, oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> and so I thought that was a rather extreme interpretation, but anyway, I guess somebody was being very radical at that point. <laughs> right. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some performance artist out there who has ingested poison as part of a performance, to be honest. I mean, there's so many radical thinkers out there. And I, I mean, I just think of all the things, for example, Marina Abramovich has done to her body. And I mean, yeah, the, the idea of no limitations is definitely, I think, important in art. But like you say, I think it's that that line, you, you know, it can't, not, it, it can still be art and not be lethal. Yes. <laughs> doesn't have to be that because I mean you could technically you know have a tiny 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 bit of poison or something like that there'd be some some conceptual way of getting around that and and also just a quick thing as someone who spent 15 plus years in the UK I can I can you know I can say that there's definitely a, a different attitude towards food there but there are there are definitely artists there too who use food and who enjoy food to the same level and have the same appreciation. But yeah, England does get a bad rap. <laughs> so, you know, if I were talking, we're talking about it, I'm thinking of like going back to the enlightenment where you have the English enlightenment and the French enlightenment and the English enlightenment was about government, you know, applying reason and whatever in the age of reason to, to government and science and whatever. And and not necessarily to art. Whereas in France during the, the same time, they were applying reason to art and saying, oh, if you make music, you can't really make music unless you have the other hand where you have an educated listener and you know that sort of thing. So that's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about England today. I, I, I'm talking about going back to a, a different way of, of thinking 
abstractly about about it. So that's all. I'm not I'm not fingering them as you know. <laughs> the, the <cl> <laughs> yeah, I think didn't Eve Klein feed all of his gallery goers one time this blue punch that made them all sick? sick. I oh, think wow. so. Yeah, I think so. I think he there was an opening where there was nothing on the walls and all and the piece was he fed them this punch that then made them all sick to their stomachs and the well to put it tactfully, <laughs> it all came out and on the wall everywhere. <laughs> so I think that that is an example of like a more radical food as art experience not a very gentle or kind one but um you know just thinking about like the poisoning of um the viewer there i think there has been some experimentation with the, for better or for worse um, which we're not interested in yeah yeah we could discuss the ethics of that for a long yeah time, right <laughs> yeah <laughs> well Ladies, I want to thank all of you for being on this podcast today. I think it has just been really, really great talking to you. And I want to make sure that there isn't anything else that you want me to give you a chance to talk about before we, we end. You can find us at, uh, on Instagram, mainly at the Crystal FMs. And then our website is crystalfms.com. Keep That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> and having spent some time in those places, I can tell you that it really is really fascinating to, uh, to see the photographs that are there. So thanks Thank very you. much. And thanks for being on Tip of the Tongue. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, let us know in the comments. This is Liz Williams.